1: Dr. Tanisha C. Ford joined us on Tuesday to discuss her book, Liberated Threads, which explored the intersection of Black women, fashion, and politics in 20th century America, Britain, and also apartheid South Africa. And today, she returns to discuss her recently published memoir, Dressed in Dreams, A Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion.
0: Yeah, and our listeners might remember from Tuesday's episode that in Liberated Threads, Tanisha actually paid homage to her mother, who embraced fashion as a form of self and political expression as a college student at Indiana University in the 1960s. And she really did this wonderful job of contextualizing her mother within Tanisha's broader narratives about Black power and soul style and those movements that she really takes as her subject in that book. But as a memoir, Dressed in Dreams is a much more personal approach to the power of clothing, And while Dressed in Dreams is certainly Tanisha's love letter to fashion as professed in the title, it's also in many ways this beautiful love letter to her mother and the special bond that they formed through fashion. Tanisha, thank you so much. Welcome back to Dressed. How did your mom inform and inspire your early relationship to the power of fashion? Now we're moving into Dressed in Dreams.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, my mom. Wow. Again, so... I mentioned that she was this young, rebellious, preteen and teenager. And she remained that way her whole entire life. You know, even once she became a police officer, which meant a certain degree of conformity. I mean, she wore a uniform to work every day. But even then, as soon as she got home, she took that uniform off and she styled out in all her fashions, you know. And one of the other things she did was she wore her hair as a police officer, her, her cap um, your hair was not supposed to be beyond that cap, you know, but she would wear cornrows and buck the system in that way by like pressing to be able to wear her hair in these styles. Um, and and in that way, she was one of the, part of that early generation of Black women who were fighting against um, hair discrimination in the workplace. So in every facet of her life, hair and dress were extremely important. And so for me, what that meant was, Growing up with a mother who was just so, who seemed so confident and just so set into who she was. It just felt like, you know, like she was just really comfortable being her. And she was her everywhere she went. She never changed or code switched. She was just her. And on the one hand, that was very intimidating for me because, you know, I'm a young girl and I'm feeling all the insecurities that come with young girlhood and the teenage angst of, you know, the middle school and high school years. And my mom just seemed so steadfast. She was this rock. But on the other hand, it meant that I wanted that, too. And I felt like the way to get that was to emulate her style of dress. So I wore all of my mother's clothes. I I remember just, you know, my earliest memories are of, being in her closet, wearing her black leather jackets that she bought from Wilson's Leather Store. I remember her having these Black is Beautiful t-shirts. One of them was gold and it had Black is Beautiful in red, black and green lettering and wearing that as a little girl and believing that black was beautiful because my mom had worn that t-shirt and declared that black is beautiful. You know, I wanted to wear all her fitted dresses and her power suits and everything because I I just thought the more of her I could put on, the stronger I could be, the more confident I could feel. So I wore my mom's clothes my entire life. Uh, She just sent me this picture the other day, like, you know, hey, this is us. Remember us? And we went to this, um, we we were at a theater, we saw a show. She's like, you remember this picture? And I was like, yeah, I do remember this night. And what I also remembered is in that picture, I'm wearing her blouse and I'm like maybe eight or nine years old and I'm wearing her blouse. It didn't even fit me properly, but I wanted to wear it because we were going to the theater and I wanted to feel grown up, you know. And my mom was the epitome of like grown black woman sophistication. So she and I always had that bond through clothes. The interesting thing though was that my mom wore her hair natural most of my life. There were a couple of instances where she didn't wear her hair natural. Very brief moments, but most of the time she had natural hair. She she wore her hair in locks before, you know, people were wearing locks, dreadlocks as fashionable hairstyling. But I did not wear my hair natural. That was not a thing that was going to happen for me as a Black girl in my teens. Nobody wore their hair natural. We all had perms by that point. You know, we all were wearing our hair permed in, in elementary school, middle school, high school. Uh, I wore weaves and all these things. And my mom just kind of looked like, oh, goodness. Like, you know, <laughs> she let me do it all. She never really said anything. But, you know, that natural hair piece, I did not wear my hair natural. And so we we didn't bond on that front until the early 2000s when I, I had graduated from college in 2002. And I decided I'm going to go natural. By that point, there was a burgeoning natural hair movement among women who were part of this, what they called neo soul movement. So Erica Badu, Jill Scott, India Irie, you know, Khalees was in there as kind of like this soul funk rocker chick, you know? And so those women were making it cooler to wear one's hair natural. So I finally did it and my mom and I could then bond over that, but she was a model for all of that. Even before I ever went natural, I just always saw her willing to wear her hair natural even though no, very few people around where we grew up were doing any of the things she was doing with her hair, so she's just to this day she is my Shiro. I love her so much. I have so much respect for her uh, and appreciation for how she raised me. And uh, sometimes I look in the mirror now and I I see her and I'm like, oh, that is just so weird. It's like I look like her now. Like that's just so odd, but one of the things I wanted to do as a historian, as a writer, was, you know, write her into the archive. To me, that's like the biggest thank you I could ever give to her.
0: Yeah. And I mean, your your book really, it's a love letter to fashion, but I think it's also a love letter to your mom.
2: It is.
0: <laughs> and you talk about fashion being her love language, you know, one of the ways that she shared her love with you. So it's it's such a beautiful testament to that. So you have this really powerful statement in the book's first chapter. You've alluded to it a little bit already. It's something we can all relate to. I mean, you write that our garments are archives of memories, individual and collective material and emotional that tell these rich textured stories of our lives. And each chapter in, the, in your love letter to fashion is centered around one item of dress that represents different stages of your life, such as the leather jacket, when you get your first leather jacket such a wonderful point in the book the jerry curl bamboo earrings and the afro puff looking back what are some of the most important lessons you've learned from a life lived in fashion and style
2: that is such a good question it's also such a hard question <laughs> i don't know it's kind I know. of like what lesson didn't i learn you know i just feel like <laughs> through those clothes we learned so much i mean i think a few things, though, that stick out to me, and the beauty about writing a memoir at this stage of my life is that I can also look back with the wisdom I have now that I didn't have then. And so I, I try to do this balance of writing in my voice from that particular, whatever particular age I'm writing about, but also then having sort of a narrative voice that runs through there that is the voice of wisdom that I have now, you know? To layer those two voices um, on top of one another. But uh, looking back on it, the chapter on coochie cutters, which is what my generation called hot pants or short shorts, um, it, it was really interesting for me to look back on that moment in my life, in my, you know, teenage years to think about like how Black girls' bodies, how we were punished for being thick and curvy. And so we would wear our coochie cutters to school and white girls would wear theirs to school, but our bodies would look, uh, we would look lascivious in those shorts. We would look fast. We'd look too grown and we could be sent home, but, you know, our white peers, they could wear those things and no one batted an eye. There was a way that they were kind of insulated from the critiques of hypersexuality that we all experienced to such a great extent. Um, And that it was important for me to say all that because You know, studies have shown now that black girls are more likely to be pushed out of school. And it's things like breaking the school's dress code that can get black girls expelled from school. Right. And put them on this pipeline um, into the criminal justice system. So I wanted to take something as simple as wanting to wear the shorts that we saw the girls in the 95 South videos, you know, the Miami based music videos wearing, we just wanted to wear those because that was what was on trend, you know, but then our, we are criminalized for doing so in ways. And so I wanted to kind of link, My teenage desire with what I know now about how they were, how and why they were enforcing those dress codes and the critiques that they were offering about our bodies and how we were choosing to dress ourselves. Um, I think another important piece for me was writing about college. And, you know, when before I went to Indiana University, I began college at a historically black university, Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta, Georgia, of course. And that was the first time where I really experienced a large-scale Black queer community. You know, definitely there were queer folks in my community back home in Fort Wayne in Indiana, but queerness had to be so suppressed, you know, especially if you were Black, young, and queer. But to go to Atlanta and see people just unapologetically open about their sexuality, people who were experimenting with piercings and tattoos and, you know, wearing their hair and all these different vibrant colors and all these other things that to me were unheard of in Indiana, where we were supposed to be so socially conservative because of our Christian upbringing, you know, to see that in the Atlanta context was mind-blowing. And so it was really important for me, even more so with Dressed in Dreams than I did in Liberated Threads, to map queer Black fashion histories on top of and alongside what we gets told as this more mainstream Black fashion history, because the two run parallel. So much of hip-hop fashion and the fashion I grew up wearing was influenced by Black queer, Black trans communities. And that's why also I'm so grateful for shows like Pose, and the series Our House, I'm happy with those shows because they exposed just how much the underground ballroom scene was influencing so much of what we ended up seeing in music videos, what ended up being a part of rap lyrics, like, like Queen Latifah, who have Vogue dancers from the ballroom scene in her music videos before Madonna does it, Queen Latifah does it, you know? So it was important for me to like, not only illuminate that history, but center that history. Because I think as a, what I realized was working as a historian and working with archives, so much of the story is guided by what's in the archive. Mm -hmm. But when archives are kind of segregated in ways so that, you know, black gay black queer black lesbian experiences don't become a part of you know a mainstream or standard uh civil rights movement archive it means that you're not even looking for it oftentimes because it's just not there in front of you in the archive once i realized that flaw of the black freedom movement archive i was like oh we're, i want to actively write against this in dress in dreams like i want to center black queer bodies in this history because Black queer people are all around us in our communities and leading a lot of the movements that we're a part of. So that was really important to me. And that chapter on knee-high boots allowed me to, to really engage in that conversation.
0: And something I'm also hoping you can talk a little bit about is cultural appropriation, which is something you address in your chapter on bamboo earrings. And something that you see throughout Liberated Threads as well, which is, you know, these white colonialist practices that have sought actively sought to erase Black people's culture or homogenize Black people's culture um, and heritage. And then they turn around and they appropriate these cultures and in many cases literally wear them. Um, can you talk about how you used clothing in your own experience to both navigate and understand those intersections?
2: Well, part of the reason why I called this book um, a Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion was because I wanted to approach the appropriation conversation from a different vantage point. So oftentimes when issues of appropriation rise to the surface it's because people in the black community and black queer communities are saying wait a minute we've been doing it that thing that this white celebrity or that white social media influencer is wearing we've been wearing that and here's the visual record of us wearing those clothes so essentially to me what that means is we have to stand up and yell and scream and say, we've been robbed. We've been robbed. You've stolen this thing from us. And you know try to get, try to plead a public case to get people to recognize this. So I did not want to have to start from that defensive posture. I wanted to be able to use my platform as a writer, writing this book for a, a trade press, to say, hey, here's all the beautiful things that we do with clothing. Here's how we make magic out of a dollar store t-shirt and some puffy paint. You know, here's how we take wet and wild lipstick and mix the colors together to make our own new funky colors. Here's how we take, you know, a pair of $10 earrings and call them bamboo earrings and make them this huge cultural marker of, you know, black girlhood and black feminist, you know, and, I, I wanted to to praise us and not defend us, right? And that in praising us, that would allow us to take up more space, right? In the fashion zone, in the beauty lane, you know, because what, as a Black girl, what this is like growing up, it's, it's like, okay, I want to wear these designer clothes. I want to wear Louis. I want to wear Gucci. I want to wear all these things that I see. I want to wear polo but you have to be able to imagine your black body in the clothes that are modeled by white folks, you know? And so I wanted to center black bodies of all kinds as a way to say, hey, we have our own story to tell too. And the beautiful thing about this moment is that it it coincided with a time where we're starting to see more expansion in the fashion industry to center Black designers, Black fashion execs. So when Rihanna launched Fenty, um, her her upscale luxury fashion line with LVMH, I was like, "Wow, this is so amazing!" because she has all Black models, and so now. White folks get to see what it's like to have to imagine yourselves in a garment that was designed by the mind of a black woman, you know, from the Caribbean. And I love that because what to me that says is see, it's okay, it's okay for you all to experience it through us and not need a white woman to translate what something like what Rihanna would design. to you through her white body right like you you can it's okay for you to see blackness and want to you know want to wear the clothes without needing to appropriate it first in order to make it safe or desirable for you to wear it you know and that was really important to me and so I write in Dressed in Dreams that so many times though that's not the case where the fashion isn't you know, we don't see it directly. It's not directly adopted um, from Black folks. It's not even considered fashion when we do it. It's considered ghetto, you know, it's considered a throwaway, you know, but then when a white designer, like say Patricia Field, claims it and says, ooh, let's put this on, you know, Carrie Bradshaw on Sex in the City, then all of a sudden it becomes fashion. And I wanted us to think critically, not us as black people, but us as Americans to think critically about why we need that step to happen before we can recognize black fashion. But I didn't want black women and and femmes to have to do the work of explaining that, you know, I wanted to be able to tell our story on our own terms.
0: Yeah. And you're talking about the nameplate, actually, that Carrie wears. That famous nameplate that she wears on Sex and the City is something that was appropriated.
2: Exactly. So the nameplate. And then also she wears a pair of Carrie bamboo earrings. Like they are bamboo earrings that say have a Carrie nameplate in the bamboos.
0: Right, right. And you're, again, so you're left letter to fashion. So you talk about your experience going and getting your first nameplate necklace um, and acquiring those bamboo earrings and throughout the book. And I have to say that the collection, Rihanna, that you just mentioned, Rihanna's first collection for Fenty, she was actually inspired by the Grandassa models and your research for one some of her collections, or at least her first collection, um, which is, I mean, it's, that's incredible.
2: That was so incredible. I, I remember waking up and seeing that she had posted a photo of Kwame Brathwaite with Bi Black. It's from one of the Grandassa's uh, modeling shows. And I was like, oh, wow, Rihanna knows who Kwame Brathwaite is. Like, Isn't that amazing? So I'm like, you know, like reposting it on my social. Like, wow, this is amazing. And then one of my friends said, you too. She knows you too. I was like, what? What are you talking about? And so she sends me the link to the Vogue Australia article where Rihanna is saying that you know she saw the photographs, but then she read my work to, to learn more about the context wow. of the photos that she was going to use for her campaign. And I was blown away. I am <laughs> such a huge Rihanna fan. Like, I just love everything Rihanna does. And I just could not believe it. it. And that for me was one of those full circle moments because, you know, as a historian, I was making a bold choice as a graduate student to choose to write about fashion. I mean, that just wasn't something that a, a, a quote unquote serious historian did you know and although there were these other black women pioneers who were writing about you know hair and beauty politics and you know there were people who were in like the the you know fashion studies space who were doing some brilliant work and there were other other people who um, were writing about this from like a literary standpoint, and I'm thinking about my my good friend Monica, who's a professor at Barnard, who wrote *Slaves to Fashion*. You know, she was doing this work using literature too as a as a central framework. But to say, "Hey, I'm going to study the the Black Freedom Movement, and I'm going to study it through the lens of dress," like what? Like, who, who wants to do that? Like, who's going to do that work? And then who's going to take that work seriously? And so to see that I've been able to launch a career off of this research and that, you know, just a short period later, I think, what, I finished graduate school in, in 2011. And by, you know, 2019, Rihanna's like, you know, please support. I'm like, what?
0: And you have a TV show, too.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, like. my mind around that too like it just feels like oh my goodness it's just such validation for no matter what you do no matter what industry what field you're in follow your heart follow your gut stay true to who you are I think that's the Amy Ford in me right who's like you know stay true to you and the rest will fall in line and I'm so glad that I followed my heart I'm so glad I trusted my gut And listened to the ancestors and did the work that I was purposed to do.
0: Tanisha, thank you so much for being here. This is an incredible conversation.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. You asked really great questions. It made me think. And it's fun to kind of go down memory lane with my work.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, so many our listeners can find all three of your books. You've written so many incredible articles as well. Um, you're a cultural critic out there talking about fashion history and culture. So yeah. We'll link our listeners to all of your work and we'll keep our eyes out for your future projects. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cassidy. Tanisha, thank you so much for being here with us again today
1: and for sharing your stories with all of us. And we cannot recommend her book enough, Dress listeners, so please get yourself a copy of any one of her three books. They are all very inspiring reads. And also,
0: Dress and Dreams is soon to be a television show starring Gabrielle Union. Yes, which is so, so exciting. Congratulations, Tanisha. And dress listeners, you can find more about her work at TanishaC4.com. And also, if you want to take a deep dive into her research, which I highly recommend, like April just said, then get your hands on a copy of both Liberated Threads and Kwame Brathwaite. The latter is an exhibition catalog, so lots of fabulous pictures, which we all absolutely love. I mean, I really just cannot say enough wonderful things about Tanisha's work. And she's such a lovely human being, obviously. Yes, and you can follow Tanisha on
1: Instagram at solista PhD, where you can be kept up to date on all of her incredible projects, articles, interviews, including her most recent interview with the New York Times in The Incredible Whiteness of the Museum Fashion Collection, which is, of course, (laughs) written by New York Times fashion critic Vanessa Friedman. I think we might just have to be talking about this on an upcoming Fashion History Now episode. (laughs) It's been like a hot topic within the field of fashion studies um the last few weeks and and you know as we know the systemically racist practices inherent to the fashion industry and also by extension fashion museums and fashion collections are really being interrogated and dismantled in light of the black lives matter movement and scholars such as Tanisha are being
0: called upon to provide their invaluable insights now more than ever So again, thank you, Tanisha, for all of your work and contributions. And of course, for taking the time to talk to us and share your work with us. And we will be keeping our eyes open for the TV show and for your future projects. That does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider the value and wisdom in Tanisha's mom's words. Stay true to you and the rest will fall in line next time you get dressed. Please be sure
1: and tune in to Tuesday's full-length episode we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct messages on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying
0: each week's episode. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you Tuesday.